Blog Talk Radio. Mama 
Mamba Mubiai, Mulubawaki Tanda. Wawaka Yembe, Wena Menshi. And welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. Uh, it's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, Abayomi Azikwe. Today is Saturday, uh, September the 18th, 2021. We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Do We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, this worldwide radio broadcast. Later on, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the announcement by the United States uh, President Joe Biden that the government will detain and deport thousands of people from Haiti who are seeking asylum in southern Texas. Ethiopia is speaking out against the wanton interference in its affairs by Washington. We'll have details on that as well. The southern African state of Zimbabwe is reporting on an irrigation scheme in operation now for several years. And the economic community of West African states has been pressuring Guinea to hold elections in the aftermath of a military coup uh, that was carried out on September the 5th. In the second hour, we review a number of issues impacting Africa and the world. Finally, we will listen uh, to a briefing uh, from the Director General of the African Center's for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, Dr. John Kangasone, on the status of the COVID-19 pandemic 
the vaccination rollouts and other public health issues across uh, the African continent. These and other features will be brought to you by during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll take a musical interlude. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
palmés venant de loin qui ont créé famine et grâce à la lion Quel bon vent nous amène si après des semaines de ce même cycle de vie Cela faisait des siècles et l'on n'avait pas revu La sensation de profiter de tout ce qui fitait Vraie première récompense, boulot fin pété, tout ce que rien ne pourra compenser
Welcome back, and uh, that was um, a collection of uh, African party music and uh, from various parts of the African continent. Uh, the last tune we heard there was uh, by um, Bonga, uh, it's entitled Malemba Zangola. Uh, before that was Rumba All the Way by Louis Mkwanga. and There was also Shiwaniso. Uh, with the tune entitled Nguba Ye Kufara, and many others, uh, including um, Go Ade Koteba, uh, Mapumba, uh, Koteja, uh, Bopal Mansi Mina, uh, Masere Sila, and Sekuba Bambino. And uh, that is uh, African music, of course, uh, designed for partying as well as listening. And uh, you're listening uh, to uh, the Pan-African Journal, the worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe, and uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, Today is Saturday, September the 18th, 2021. Right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment, and our lead story uh, deals with the situation in the uh, southern border area of Del Rio, Texas, uh, where thousands of Haitian migrants are seeking uh, to escape poverty, hunger, and a feeling of hopelessness uh, in many instances uh, in Haiti uh, due to the recent earthquake, uh, due to the recent political turmoil. Uh, Many of these people have also been out of the country uh, working in various uh, South American states as well. But uh, due to the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic uncertainty that has subsequently followed, uh, they are seeking uh, refuge into the United States. Now, the United States, under President Joe Biden, plans to speedily uh, send them back, and he will not deter them as thousands of people remain encamped uh, on the Texas border. Uh, Earlier today, uh, many of them uh, crossed uh, from Mexico. Uh, People continued watering, waiting across the Rio Grande on Saturday afternoon, re-entering Mexico to purchase water, food, and diapers in Ciudad de Alcuna before returning uh, to the Texas encampment under a, and near a bridge uh, in the border city of Del Rio. 
Junior Jean, a 32-year-old man from Haiti, watched as people cautiously carried cases of water or bags of food through the Nihai River water. Jean said he lived on the streets in Chile uh, the past four years, resigned uh, to searching for food in garbage cans. He said that, quote, we are all looking uh, for a better life, unquote. The Department of Homeland Security said uh, earlier today that it moved about 2,000 of the migrants uh, from the camp to other locations uh, yesterday for processing and possible removal from the United States. His statement also said that it would have 400 agents and officers in the area by Monday morning and would send uh, more if necessary. The announcement marked a swift response to the sudden arrival of Haitians in Del Rio, a Texas city of about 35,000 people, roughly 145 miles, that's 230 kilometers west of San Antonio, Texas. It sits on a relatively remote sketch of border uh, that lacks capacity to hold and process such large numbers of people. A U.S. official uh, told the international press uh, yesterday that operational capacity and Haiti's willingness to accept flights will determine how many here. Uh, the official said progress was being made on negotiations with uh, the Haitian authorities. The official said uh, Friday uh, that the U.S. Uh, would likely fly five to eight planes a day uh, starting uh, tomorrow, while another official expected no more uh, than two a day and said all migrants would be tested for COVID. Both officials were not authorized to discuss the matter publicly and spoke on the conditions of anonymity. Now, Toll of the U.S. Uh, plans on Saturday, uh, several migrants said they still intended to remain in, in encampment and seek asylum. Some spoke of the most recent devastating earthquake in Haiti and the assassination of President Juvenile Moïse, saying they were afraid to return to a country that seems more unstable than when they left. In Haiti, there is no security. That's according to uh, Fabricio Jean, a 38-year-old Haitian who arrived with his wife and two daughters. The country is in political crisis, he said. Jorge Luis Mora Castillo, a 48-year-old from Cuba, said he arrived in Acuna on Saturday and also planned to cross into the United States. Castillo said his family paid smugglers $12,000 to take him, his wife and their son, out of Paraguay a South American nation where they had lived for four years. Toll of the U.S. message discouraging migrants, Castillo said he wouldn't change his mind. Because to go back to Cuba is to die, he said. U.S. Customs and Border Protection uh, closed off uh, vehicle and pedestrian traffic in both directions. Uh, yesterday, at the only border crossing between Del Rio and Saud Acuna, Mexico, quote, to, to urgent safety and security needs, unquote, travelers were being uh, directed in, in, indefinitely uh, to a crossing in Eagle Pass, roughly 55 miles or 90 kilometers away. Crowd estimates varied, but Bell Verde County Sheriff Frank Joe Martinez said uh, yesterday that there were about 13,700 new arrivals in Del Rio. Migrants pitched tents and built makeshift shelters from giant reeds known as Carrizo Cane. Many bathed and washed clothing in the river. Haitians have been migrating to the United States in large numbers from South America for several years, many having left their Caribbean nation after a devastating earthquake 
in 2010, some 11 years ago, after jobs dried up from the 2016 Summer Olympics in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, many made the dangerous trek uh, by foot, uh, bus, and car to the U.S. border, including uh, through uh, the infamous Darien Gap, a Panamanian jungle. It is unclear how such a large number amassed so quickly, although many Haitians have been assembling in camps on the Mexican side of the border to wait uh, while deciding whether to attempt entry into uh, the U.S. And um, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. And, of course, uh, we're here uh, every week um, dealing uh, with some of the most pressing and uh, burning issues of the day. And Haiti uh, requires the attention of uh, the Pan-African Newswire and the various uh, African and social justice organizations uh, operating in the United States. Haitian people are African people. Uh, They have a long uh, history of cooperation, uh, similar history to the African-American people. Uh, So therefore, uh, many uh, people inside the United States are very, very concerned about the plight uh, of the Haitians uh, who have sought uh, refuge uh, in uh, Texas. And of course, um, these people uh, are no different uh, than people coming from Afghanistan. Uh, Haiti has been uh, for over two centuries Uh, subjected to United States sanctions, uh, blockades, interventions, occupations, and other forms of destabilization inside the country. Now, a pandemic, uh, in regard to the situation on the southern border, a uh, pandemic-related order to immediately expel migrants without giving them the opportunity to seek asylum that was introduced in March of 2020 under the Trump administration, it remains in effect. It was not uh, lifted uh, by the Biden administration. But unaccompanied children and many families have been exempt. During his first month in office, Biden chose to exempt children traveling alone on humanitarian grounds. Nicole Phillips, the legal director for advocacy group uh, Haitian Bridge Alliance, said uh, earlier today that the U.S. government should process migrants and allow them to apply for asylum and not rush to expel them. It really is a humanitarian crisis, uh, Philip said. There needs to be a lot of help uh, there now. Mexico has agreed to take in expelled families only from Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, creating an opening for Haitians and other nationalities. Mexico's immigration agency said in a statement earlier today that Mexico has opened a, quote, permanent dialogue, unquote, with Haitian government representatives to, quote, address the situation of irregular migratory flows during their entry and transit uh, through Mexico as well as their assisted return. The agency didn't specify if it was referring to the Haitians in Saud Acuna or of the uh, thousands of others in Tapachula at the Guatemalan border, and the agencies uh, didn't immediately reply to requests for further details. In August, uh, U.S. authorities stopped migrants nearly 209,000 times at the border, which was close to a 20-year high, even though many of the stops involved repeat crosses uh, because there are no legal consequences for being expelled under the pandemic authority. 
And in other news, in the Horn of Africa, in the state of Ethiopia, former Ethiopian diplomat and other global political analysts said the, the, that imperialist nations, primarily the United States, have recurrently tried uh, to impose the ill-conceived policy foreseeing the independent-minded reform government as a threat to their hegemonic interests in the Horn of Africa. Speaking at a People's Forum in New York City, former Ethiopian diplomat Mohammed Hassan uh, stated uh, that uh, the U.S. Uh, has pursued the wrong approach in handling the Horn Nation and fuel conflict in the region. He said, I don't think uh, French troops succeeded in Mali, neither they succeeded in Niger, nor they are succeeding in Chad. The peace witness right now in Europe has been secured at the expense of looted Africa. Africa, particularly French Africa, has been subsidizing France to the tune of 400 billion euros every year. Imperialists don't want Africans to work together as the unity of the latter has frightened them, and the new unstoppable Horn of Africa system can solve all continental problems. He added, European Americans, uh, peace and justice activist Elias Imari, said that imperialism in the Horn of Africa is the high stage of capitalism or era of monopoly capitalism, which began in the late 19th century. Alliance uh, pointed out that imperialism started in 1885 at the Berlin Conference and did so uh, the scrambling of Africa. Quote, the tragedy of imperialism fiercely landed on Africans or African-Americans with the scrambling of Africa. At that time, uh, natives fiercely resisted the bloody war in Sudan and defeated the British force, but later on they came back with a consolidated force. Simon Tesfar Merian, founder and director of the New Africa Institute, said uh, that the ongoing conflict in Ethiopia has received significant global attention on the Horn of Africa, the turbulent region long wrapped uh, by civil wars. Simon further highlighted that the conflict has been causing untold atrocities, uh, hundreds of thousands of displaced people and sanctions levied by those uh, missed uh, by fabricated narratives, misled by fabricated narratives. Since some Western powers have been supporting tribalism and trying to establish Western-led regime change operations instead of consolidating unity in the Horn of Africa, they have been assisting the terrorist TPLF. Hence, the Horn countries that should be vigilant to protect themselves from all odds, such as the terrorist TPLF and the imperialist policy of the West, and they need to foster socioeconomic integration and cross-border partnerships so that African problems would get African solutions, he concluded. And uh, in other news uh, taking place uh, in Zimbabwe, for most of the last uh, 10 years, uh, there has been an irrigation scheme uh, that uh, has borne fruit for uh, Zimbabwe farmers. Now, there's a vast tract of arable land which forms Bubi Lumpana Irrigation Scheme in the Lupani Montebelli Land North Province has been uh, lying uh, idle despite its huge potential to improve the locals' livelihoods. Today, the irrigation scheme, which is situated in Mpufu Village under Chief Bob Hikwa, uh, has been turned into a green belt. It is one of the flagship government projects that symbolizes hope for nearly 100 families. Bubi Lupani irrigation scheme is set to transform subsistence agriculture at household levels into commercial agriculture as part of the rural development and industrialization 
in line with the Vision 2030 of creating an upper-middle-income society in Zimbabwe. Lupani is a rural, semi-arid area with a growing population and some infrastructural expansion after uh, it was accorded uh, the capital status of the province. And uh, finally, uh, in regard to this uh, Pan-African Newswire report, uh, in the West African state of Guinea, uh, the Economic Community of West African States uh, has um, met uh, once again uh, with the coup makers in, uh, the, in the West African state of Guinea. And, of course, uh, Guinea was the victim of a military uh, coup d'etat uh, several uh, days ago. In fact, on September uh, the 5th, uh, the coup uh, took place inside this uh, mineral-rich West African state. And, of course, um, the West African leaders met uh, the Guinean coup leader, uh, Colonel Mamadi Dumboya, uh, in the capital of Conakry on yesterday. Uh, they pushed uh, for elections within six months, but apparently failed to receive uh, firm commitments uh, from the uh, ruling uh, junta. Uh, the meeting between uh, Ghanaian President Nana Akufo-Aju, uh, Ivorian President Alassane Ouattara, and Dumboya uh, came after a regional summit on Thursday, which urged swift elections and sanctions Guinea's push pushest. On the 5th of September, uh, special forces led by Dumboya assaulted the presidential palace and ousted uh, President Alpha Conde, sparking international condemnation. After earlier suspending uh, Guinea over the coup, the Economic Community of West African States on Thursday called on the junta to hold presidential and parliamentary elections within six months. 15-nation bloc also imposed a travel ban on junta members and froze their financial assets. The Ghanaian and Ivorian presidents traveled to Conakry the next day where they met Guinea's strongman in the city's Sheridan Hotel. But the results of their meeting appeared inconclusive. Asked by reporters whether Dumboya uh, had accepted the proposed six-month transition period, Akufu Aju responded, we are talking. Ghana's president added that Dumboya is awaiting uh, the conclusion of his own internal consultation on restoring civilian rule. Wattar, for his part, simply said the talks had gone, quote, very well, unquote. The push uh, has fueled international concern over democratic backsliding across West Africa and drawn parallels with Mali, which suffered two coups since August of 2020. Dumbuya began a four-day series of talks on Tuesday designed to sound out uh, the country's political and civil society leaders on the path uh, towards civilian rule. But he has so far refused to commit a, to a timetable. The only timetable that counts is that of the Guinean people who have suffered so much, the former French legionnaire told political leaders in a closed-door meeting on Tuesday. When faced with a similar coup in neighboring Mali last year, ECOWAS imposed economic sanctions but lifted them after the military committed to restoring civilian rule within an agreed time frame. However, uh, more than a year since the coup in Mali, the army is still in power. There are also increasing doubts about a pledge to hold elections in February of 2022. On Thursday, uh, after um, the regional summit focused on Guinea, ECOWAS Commission President Jean-Claude Cassie-Brew uh, insisted that the country's transition 
must be very short. Junta sanctions are designed to send a strong signal to all those who are tempted to have this type of idea, he added. Public discontent in Guinea has been brewing for months before the coup over the leadership of Alpha Conde, who was 83 years old. He was a former opposition figure. Conde became Guinea's first democratically elected president since the overthrow of President uh, Ahmed Secretary Ray's government after his death in April of 1984. Initially, uh, he was uh, re-elected in 2015, but last year he pushed through a controversial new constitution that allowed him to run for a third term, and that uh, election was held in October. Uh, the move sparked mass demonstrations in which dozens of protesters were killed. Uh, Conde won the election, but the political opposition maintained the poll was a sham. The military is holding the former president despite international calls for his release. Ghanaian President Nana Akufu Aju said on Thursday that he and Wattara had been permitted to visit Conde that day. Guinea Junta has agreed to the principle of freeing the deposed president, but the issue remains sensitive. Opposition groups are also opposed to releasing him, for example, citing the danger he might try to regain power. Guinea, of course, is a poor nation that is very rich in mineral resources. The population is approximately 13 million people. And as we mentioned before, uh, the country is abundant in iron, gold, diamonds, and bauxite. Uh, the ore is used to make aluminum. Uh, mining is the driver of the Guinean economy. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. We want to remind our listeners that the Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has since then, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, and magazines, and journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. And if you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do is go to our website, and that is at uh, Blog Talk Radio. The website is panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, also, uh, if you'd like to have access to this program, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for today, uh, Saturday, September 18th, 2021. Uh, just go uh, to our website, and uh, that is at uh, the Pan-African Radio Network. It's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. The programs can be shared. The links can be shared via email, blogs, and websites, and on social media networks. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week. Yeah, 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 yeah.
Welcome back, and uh, that was, of course, the uh, sound of Jimi Hendrix uh, doing the tune entitled Room Full of Mirrors, and today uh, represents the 51st anniversary of the transition of uh, Jimi Hendrix on uh, September 18th of uh, 1970 in London. And, uh, of course, uh, we uh, play Hendrix's music here on a regular basis. And right now we want to move into uh, the Africa Live, uh, CGTN. Let's listen in. This is CGTN, China Global Television Network. Guinea's ruling junta says it will not bow to pressure to let deposed President Conde leave the country. Algeria's former president, Abdelaziz Bouteflika, dies at 84. And South Sudanese people engage in a debate on a new constitution. Hello and welcome. You're watching Africa Live. We're coming to you live from Nairobi. I'm Hannah Vivian. Here more stories making headlines this hour. In business news, Ghana signs a $1.2 billion deal to develop its bauxite resources. And in sports, Senegal Lionesses in pursuit of history as a 2021 women's Afro basket tips off in Cameroon. We'll begin the bulletin in Guinea, where the military junta has maintained that it will not yield to any pressure. The junta leader, Lieutenant Colonel Mamadi Dumbuya, said this on Friday after meeting with leaders of the West African Regional Bloc ECOWAS. Their CDTN's Wanjim Guy with the details. ECOWAS has been demanding the release of deposed and former President Alpha Conde. ECOWAS leaders are also urging Lieutenant Colonel Mamadou Dambuya to ensure a return to constitutional order. The ECOWAS delegation held talks with Dambuya on Friday. Among the representatives from the bloc were Ghanaian President Nana Akufo-Addo and Ivorian President Alassane Ouattara. The leaders said they had a successful meeting with the Guinean junta.
We had very honest brotherly meetings with Lieutenant Colonel Dumboya and his associates, and I think ECOWAS and Guinea will find a way to work together. We've had an excellent stay in Conakry. I would like to thank you, my brother, President Dumboya, the CNRD president, and say that we have had a very good meeting. President Nana Akufo-Addo, whom I joined, just told you the essential points. So we also met my brother Alpha Conde, who is doing well and will stay in contact. Thank you to the people of Guinea. The two heads of state did not disclose any information on progress of their efforts to try and secure Conde's release. The deposed leader has been in custody of the military junta since his overthrow a fortnight ago. Previously, opposition leader Salo Delain Diallo had offered to be part of the transition government. In the meantime, Dumbuya is expected to hold a press conference on Saturday. Wanjamungai, CGTN. Well, France is turning up the pressure on the U.S. and Australia. Paris recalled its ambassadors to the two countries, furious over being cut from a submarine deal. Russ Cullen has more. A serious escalation of the situation with France recalling its ambassadors to the United States, to Australia. Over the last few days, we've seen a deterioration of the situation when it comes to the diplomatic language that is being used, France describing what Australia did in breaking off that pact it had with France to, to design and, and develop nuclear-powered submarines. Uh, the Naval Group, the French defence contractors, were meant to be uh, providing 12 nuclear-powered uh, submarines to Australia. Australia broke off that deal, signed another pact with the United States, with the United Kingdom. As far as France is concerned, that pact was, was signed behind France's back. All of a sudden, a shock, I mean, when it was first announced, the French Foreign Minister had to release a communique in the middle of the night. As such was the, the speed that France had to react to this sudden decision. On the 17th of September, there was meant to be a gala dinner being hosted in the French Embassy in Washington, D.C. to mark 240 years since, ironically, a French naval victory over the British paved the way for American independence from Great Britain. That gala dinner had already been cancelled due to the seriousness of the situation. And now we, we have the news that France is recalling its ambassadors, Philippe Etienne, is the French envoy in Washington, D.C., and he confirmed the news on Friday evening, saying that he is being recalled due to a situation which is based on the fact that allies are not behaving with the, with the behavior that is expected of partners. It's unacceptable uh, behavior, and uh, due to that reason, the threatening of the vision of alliances, the threatening of the vision of partnerships. Uh, so this situation, which, which began with, with, with the decision by Australia to, to sign up to that new pact, AUKUS, we are calling it Australia, the United Kingdom and the United States, uh, the pact to develop nuclear-powered submarines for Australia, using the United States and the United Kingdom uh, expertise. France has been furious ever since that, that came through that news and has been uh, trying to come up with a, with, a, with a reaction and trying to smooth out the situation. Such an old ally, such a crucial ally for France, the United States, those two ancient republics uh, really are such deep allies and this move to recall the ambassador to the United States along with the French envoy in Canberra, uh, really a serious escal escalation of the situation. Ross Cullen, CGTN, in Paris. Well, ahead of the UN General Assembly to be held next week, the United States is at 
says that it would delay sanctions over the conflict in northern Ethiopia if warring parties take meaningful steps to come to the negotiating table. A new executive order allows Washington to take punitive action against parties involved in the conflict since November, a fighting between the Ethiopian government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front has increased. Thousands have been killed and millions are in need of urgent humanitarian assistance. If the government of Ethiopia and the Tigray People's Liberation Front take meaningful steps to enter into talks without preconditions and allow unhindered Humanitarian assistance, the United States is prepared to mobilize assistance for Ethiopia to recover and revitalize its, its economy and build a future for its people. Otherwise, we will impose targeted sanctions against a range of responsible individuals and entities. These sanctions are not directed at the people of Ethiopia or Eritrea. They are deliberately calibrated to mitigate undue harm. Instead, they will target those responsible for the conflict and hopefully they will hope, hopefully help bring an end to the suffering of the Ethiopian people. Well, CDTN's Durham Chala has been following this story closely for us and he joins us now from Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Hi, Durham. Has there been a response from Ethiopian authorities and what should we expect from this particular threat of external sanctions? Well, Hannah, Ethiopian authorities and even people on the streets of Addis Ababa that we try to speak to uh, are expressing their unhappiness with the continuous reports, negative ones uh, most of the time, uh, if you like, according to them, uh, from the United States about the situation in the northern part of Ethiopia. As you know, the United States is a strategic ally uh, to the Ethiopian government, an old friend, if you like, as well. Uh, but these statements, including the one, the recent one, uh, of uh, trying to slam sanctions against the country uh, or uh, other uh, individuals in, in the nation, is some, a reason for most people uh, to, uh, to cry foul uh, and call on the United States to think about uh, its uh, decisions. Uh, the authorities uh, say, Hannah, that uh, uh, the United States lacks a deeper understanding of the situation on the ground in the northern part of the country. Uh, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has written an open letter, Hannah, to President Joe Biden. On the statement, it says, the destructive criminal clique adapted as propaganda and spinning international human rights and democracy, and democracy uh, machine uh, um, to its favor. Christ wolf, uh, when it leaves no stone unturned in its mission to destroy a nation of more than uh, 3,000 years of uh, history. He is saying that uh, the TPLF is a crime foul, and again, it is destroying the country by waging war in different parts of the country. The TPLF is also accusing the government of escalating uh, the already bad situation in the northern part of the country and the humanitarian situation at the same time. But the reaction from the Prime Minister and other authorities is unhappiness in general terms, and they want the United States to reconsider its decisions every step of the way, Hannah. Guillermo, what are you hearing about the options the Ethiopia government has to decisively bring an end to the conflict with the TPLF? Well, everyone we spoke to want the end of uh, this conflict in the north with TPLF uh, peacefully. The, the end, however, does not just come out of the blue. Uh, the government is proposing 
uh, a national dialogue which is now under formulation according to authorities uh, that uh, we have uh, spoken to yesterday and this morning at the same time. They are saying that this national dialogue can bring solution to the northern part of the country's uh, conflicts uh, between the, the TPLF and uh, mostly of government uh, forces. You know that Ethiopia has its own uh, mechanisms, cultural and otherwise, and government uh, officials are confident that if harnessed very well, this can uh, bring a solution, peaceful solution to the conflict in the north without any uh, third party interference. So Ethiopia must be left alone uh, to resolve its own problems without forgetting the fact that the African Union, the United Nations, and even the U.S. government are a crucial part uh, of uh, this uh, dialogue which is uh, proposed by the government. So we have to wait and see, Hannah, if the government's uh, plan of resolving the conflict in the north on its own using uh, national resource is going to uh, work or not. But for now, that is the proposal, national dialogue to peacefully resolve the northern conflict. Garam, thank you so much for following this story for us so very closely. We'll continue to hear from you on developments. Garam Chala speaking to us from Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Well, we head over to Algeria now, where our former president, Abdelaziz Bouteflika, has died at the age of 84. The presidency made the announcement on a Friday. Bouteflika led Algeria for almost two decades. His death marks the end of an era for Algeria, as CGTS Tula Shabalala now reports. Abdelaziz Bouteflika was born on 2nd March 1937 in the Algerian border town of Uja near the Moroccan border. He fought for independence from France in the 1950s and 1960s. In 1962, he served in Algeria's first post-colonial government as the Minister of Youth and Sports. A year later, he was appointed Minister of Foreign Affairs. He rose through the ranks to take office in 1999 as Algeria's first civilian leader. Bouteflika was among Algeria's most enduring politicians. As an oil-rich country, Algeria saw a modernization of its infrastructure under Bouteflika. However, Development was accompanied by allegations of widespread corruption. A 2008 constitutional amendment that removed presidential term limits allowed him to have a third and fourth term in office. Bouteflika endured ill health. After suffering a crippling stroke in 2013, he retreated from the public limelight. Critics were concerned that he was not able to carry out his duties. But Bouteflika maintained his grip on power. He was forced to resign in April 2019 after street demonstrations erupted against his plan to seek a fifth term. Noctula Shabalala, CGTN. Let's head over to East Africa now, where severe drought in Kenya's arid and semi-arid areas is putting hundreds of children at risk of dropping out of school. As CGTN's Daniel Arab Moy reports, many have already been forced to stay at home as their families struggle to earn a living. Juma Fondo is a mother of 11 struggling to take care of her family. Fondo lives in Kenya's coastal county of Kilifi, one of the 10 most affected by drought. Five of our children have dropped out of school. Harvesting wild aloe vera is one business Fondo is holding on to support the family. I am trying my level best to harvest the aloe vera plant to support my children. 
The drought has not made it easy for us, but I can't just give up. I need to make some money. This aloe vera plant is what many families here extract and sell to make a living. Right now, if uh, there's anything that can, can, can support the livelihood, like uh, leaf food, food fast, then the rest. The mother of 11 relies on this small saucepan to feed just a handful of her children. Felista Kalom is one among many girls that dropped out of school due to the prolonged drought. It's so bad that when it comes to school, we go and we're forced to come back home. We can't afford food, let alone tuition. In the nearby Katama Primary School in Kenya's coastal town of Kilifi, teachers are struggling to get the children to pay attention in class. It has become a challenge to the children. And sometimes if you are just teaching, some of them are just sleeping. In this school... Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, a series of reports uh, from CGTN on uh, various uh, African issues, uh, discussing the situation in Guinea um, and other uh, geopolitical regions on the African continent. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, the worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And uh, as we mentioned earlier, uh, today represents the 51st anniversary of the transition of Jimi Hendrix, uh, the legendary uh, guitarist and band leader, uh, composer, cultural figure, uh, who in the 1960s uh, was a major phenomenon uh, worldwide. Uh, he uh, made his transition on September 18th of 1970 in London. And there's always been a mystery uh, shrouded. His death has always been shrouded. Uh, various theories about uh, what actually happened. Uh, was it accidental? Uh, was it intentional? Or uh, was uh, he a victim of foul play uh, in uh, essentially at the peak uh, of his career? Uh, we're going to listen to a rare archival recording uh, from uh, Stockholm, Sweden, uh, contains an interview and music as well uh, during uh, the last tour of uh, Jimi Hendrix uh, along with Billy Cox and uh, Mitch Mitchell uh, after playing the Isle of Wight uh, at the end of August they embarked upon a tour uh, which lasted for about six or seven days uh, going through uh, the Scandinavian countries and also ending in Germany on September the 6th after the uh, illness of uh, bass player uh, Billy Cox. And, of course, uh, Hendrix had returned uh, to London after uh, September 6th and uh, apparently was waiting uh, for uh, some direction in terms of uh, resuming uh, the European tour uh, in uh, the fall of uh, 1970. Let's listen to this Stockholm radio interview uh, during that time period. De volgende dag, 31 augustus, kondigde Jim Hendricks het concert in het pretpark Tivoli in Stockholm als volgt aan. Oh, everybody feels alright? Yeah, right, right. Y'all look good. The powers of the people and all that good shit. 
I'll tell you what, give us a minute, uh, about one minute, just to tune up and, uh, you know, check ourselves out. Ook tijdens dit concert de gebruikelijke moeilijkheden met de installatie, publiek dat ook nu weer diverse verzoeknummers naar Hendrik zijn hoofd slingerde en waarop Hendriks enkele malen zeer scherp terugkwam, zoals direct wanneer hij onder andere zegt, hé hey, luister eens even, wanneer ik vertel dat er met mensen gespeeld kan worden, dan komen jullie pas aan de beurt. Oftewel, hey listen, when I say tool with people, that's when you all come on now, oké?
over nu weer naar een stuk interview met Hendricks. Hij vertelt dat hij Jokey de Beer heeft gespeeld tijdens zijn langdurig verblijf in de States. Het verbaasde me dat men ons nog steeds weer terug wil hebben hier. We proberen nu over een muur van feeling te komen. In het allerlaatste gedeelte van dit gesprek met Hendricks zegt hij dat we ons nu realiseren hoe belangrijk het is om een vriend in deze wereld te hebben. Tell us more, Jimmy, because we have not seen you for very long. And well, what have you been doing? I've been doing like Yogi Bear. I've been hiding, hibernating. Which means I, this surprised me that they, you know, want us, want us back here again. Why? Because because we received a lot of static in New York, a lot of aggravation in New York. Jimmy, your music today has it changed? Well, most of that we play like a. A whole vacuous, I mean, a wall of sound, a wall of feeling. That's what we try to get across. You know what I mean? We haven't been sleeping two days. Yeah. But Jimmy, during all this time when you've not appeared in in Europe, what have you been doing in in the States? You know, we've been working very hard on other projects too. You know. Tell us a bit about it, please. Well, I've been doing a lot of writing and. Billy Cox, so basically, has been doing a lot of songwriting. You've written songs along with him as well. Well, you know, we're, we're starting to do that now. We're starting to really make good contact with each other because we realize how important the friend is in this world. Het volgende stuk muziek is Come On Part One, waarin Hendrix meteen aan het begin zingt: Liefde is prachtig als het begrepen wordt. Het is zelfs nog mooi wanneer je het voelt. Love is nice if it's understood. It's even nicer when you're feeling it.
Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, from Stockholm Radio and uh, Hendrix uh, excerpts uh, from a concert uh, from early uh, September of 1970, uh, just uh, perhaps two weeks uh, prior to uh, Hendrix's uh, untimely death on September 18th of 1970, and we're commemorating the 51st anniversary of uh, Hendrix's uh, passing today. And we're going to return right now uh, to uh, the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, their briefing, uh, which took place just uh, two days ago. And, uh, of course, uh, Dr. John Nkangason uh, is the Director General of the African Center for Disease Control and Prevention, and they have been doing uh, regular briefings on the COVID-19 pandemic as well as other public health issues across uh, the African continent. So we're going to be turning to them. Right Hello and uh, good morning, afternoon or evening, depending on where you're joining us from. And uh, thank you uh, for joining us for this uh, press briefing by the Africa Centers for Disease Control and uh, Prevention. My name is Wayne Musabayana and I'm Head of Communication at the African Union Commission. So today we have uh, Dr. John Kenneth who is the director of the Africa CDC. And as usual, he's going to be talking to us um, and starting off by giving us the epidemiological updates uh, on the continent. And then he will also take time to brief us on issues concerning vaccines. And specifically, he will be delving into a mission uh, from which he has just returned to Geneva in Switzerland, uh, where he met uh, the leadership of the World Health Organization, of uh, COVAX, um, and uh, Gavi, and SEPI. Uh, and on that mission, there were actually a number of representatives from the African side, and the rest of that delegation consisted of Dr. Vera Songwe, who is uh, with the uh, United Nations Economic Commission for Africa. She's the Secretary General there. And then uh, Mr. Benedict Orama, from Afrexim Bank, as well as Mr. Strive Matiwa, who has joined us uh, quite frequently before, and he is with the Africa Vaccine Acquisition Trust. So those are a lot of details that we are going to be getting today. So, but before we get to that, let me give you the contact details for the question and answer session. So after the briefing, you can send in your questions to that usual WhatsApp number, and it is a plus 251-9455-02310. That's a plus 251-9455-0231. And to be more specific on the issues that Dr. John is going to be reporting back on concerning that visit to Geneva, um, they were discussing uh, these following issues. So they discussed access to vaccines. They discussed how to accelerate um, the access, access to vaccines. And they also discussed vaccine manufacturing. And these are issues that are really topical at the stage at where we are at uh, regarding to the response to COVID-19. So let me not uh, take up much more time and introduce Dr. John Nkenasong the director of the Africa CDC for his briefing. Dr. John, good morning and welcome back. You have the floor. Thank you, Wayne. And uh, good morning to all of you from the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which is a specialized technical 
institution of the African Union. At this time, I will share updates on the COVID-19 situation on the continent, and I will divide my comments, as always, into three. First of all, give you the state of where we are with the pandemic, and then secondly, discuss what we are doing with uh, as Africa CDC to support the continent, and lastly, uh, the situation with the vaccine and vaccination situation. So let us start with the epidemiological situation. As of today, September 16, the Af uh, all of the 55 African member states have reported uh, about 8 million cases of COVID-19. Of that number, 7.4 million have recovered. And we have unfortunately recorded a total of 204,000 deaths. And if you look at that number of deaths, put it in the context of, of the global deaths, it represents about 4.4%. The following five countries in Africa are accounting in excess of 60% of the caseloads of COVID-19 as of this week. South Africa, Morocco, Tunisia, Libya, and Ethiopia. Three countries have continued to report Report a case fatality rate that is above uh, 5%, and these three countries include Egypt, Somalia, and, and Sudan. Uh, we are not out of the wood yet. The third wave is still raging on the continent. As we speak, 43 member states representing 73% of all of our member states are now experiencing a third wave, and I'll come back to the third wave uh, soon. Uh, of that number, one, new, one country have now added, uh, have been added to the list, that is Equatorial Guinea. Seven countries are now in their fourth wave, and I'll name them. They include Algeria, Benin, Egypt, Kenya, Mauritius, Somalia, and Tunisia. Since the last um, briefing, Egypt has now been added among the countries going to their fourth wave. So you continue to see that this pandemic is, is raging from wave to, to wave. For the three countries are, have detected the alpha variant, 37 of them, of our 55 member states have reported the beta variant. 37 other countries have reported the, the, the delta variant. And two member states are now reporting the gamma variant. Again, we should always interpret these uh, variants or uh, variants of concern as overlapping, that in some countries you actually may have all of them, on, uh, so it's not exclusive. So let us now look at the trends. Over the last week, that is uh, from the period between the 6th of September to the 12th of September, during that time frame, a total of 133,000 new cases have been re re recorded across all 55 member states. And this represents a 20% decrease, average decrease over uh, the last week. We continue to see high proportions of new cases in Southern Africa, East Africa, West and Central Africa. The, five, uh, the following five countries are reporting the highest daily incident uh, cases per million. So if you normalize it by the million, it gives you a slightly different picture. Seychelles, Tunisia, Botswana, Libya, and Cape Verde. In terms of deaths, 
a total of 3,400 new deaths were recorded over the last week, and that represents a decrease of 26% compared to the previous week. Let, let us now look at the last four weeks. That is the week between 16 of August and 12 September. During that time frame, 14, we've observed a 14% average decrease <clears throat> in the number of uh, new cases across the continent. <clears throat> Excuse me. The following uh, 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 trends have played out by the regions. 5% average increase in Central Africa, 17% decrease in Southern Africa, 14% decrease in Northern Africa, 7% decrease in East Africa, and 4% decrease in Western Africa. In terms of that, we've also observed a 14% decrease across uh, the continent in the last four, four weeks. So the curve is definitely coming down, but we still have many countries that are experiencing that third wave. So let us now switch our attention to testing. As of today, over 69 million tests have been conducted across the continent. And last week alone, about 1.4 million uh, new tests for COVID were conducted. However, that represents a slight decrease of about 5% compared to the last week. And the, the case uh, positivity rate, the cumulative case positivity rate continues to be high. And as we speak, it stands at 11.6%. So let me now um, segue into our visit in Geneva. <clears throat> As Wayne said earlier, uh, we had a delegation, what we call the AVAC delegation, the African Vaccine Acquisition Task Team delegation visit in uh, Geneva. That visit included Mr. Stripe Masiwa, who is a regular guest on our platform and uh, the special envoy for COVID-19 on the continent. Uh, Dr. Vera Sungred, the UN Executive uh, Secretary uh, General for the uh, Economic Commission for Africa, the President of the Africa Green Bank, uh, Professor Bernadette Obama. So that was the delegation. The purpose of our visit there was threefold. One was to discuss with the leadership of WHO, Dr. Tedros, the leadership of COVAX, uh, Dr. Seth Berkeley, and uh, the leadership of the World Trade Organization, Dr. Ngozi, to actually, um, and others, the leadership of SETI, uh, Dr. Richard Hatcher, to discuss three things. One, how can we accelerate the situation of access to COVID vaccines on the continent, which I will touch on after this. Uh, the situation continues to be extremely critical and worrying for the continent of 1.2 billion people. The second thing was, how do we work to begin to accelerate the process of vaccine manufacturing on the continent, especially that component was discussed both with the WHO, the World Health Organization, and uh, the, the World Trade Organization, Dr. Ngozi. And lastly, uh, vaccine delivery. So we now know that uh, with the AVAP mechanism, vaccines are beginning to be delivered on the continent but how do we make sure that those vaccines get into the arms of people in a more coordinated fashion? I must add to this that um, Dr. Chidi uh, Moechi, the, the regional director of the World Health Organization for the WHO Afro Office 
was also part of the press conference, not necessarily part of the other delegation. So I must say that it was a good, a productive visit uh, in terms of uh, agreement and alignment in, in vision. One of the main outcomes of that was um, harmonizing our position with respect to what we actually need now to achieve as a target in order to um, bring this pandemic under control. If you recall, last year we have stated that as a continent, we needed to immunize up to about 60% of our population to achieve herd immunity. That was the understanding at that time. With what we now know with the virus, uh, that the vaccines that we are, are receiving do protect us from disease progression, from uh, severe disease and hospitalization and death, but not necessarily against transmission. So we needed to regroup and revise that, that target. We agreed commonly that 70%, immunizing up to about 70% of our population, what would be of the total population would be a reasonable target and, and a, a, an important programmatic target in order to uh, produce the appropriate benefit for, for the continent. So I think that was a major outcome. So going forward, we align our, uh, our goals and targets and work <clears throat> towards achieving, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and work towards achieving that target. For instance, uh, I was delighted that um, the WHO and ourselves are still pushing for at least uh, the continent to acquire vaccines enough to immunize up to about 30 to 40% of its population by the end of the year. I think that is an ambitious target, uh, but it's a target that if we are truly uh, determined that we need to get this pandemic out of our continent, that is a reasonable target to, to try to achieve. We also discussed, as I said, manufacturing, that we need to accelerate uh, the process and then work with the spirit of an ecosystem. That way it's not one country manufacturing vaccines and then nobody else does that, but then we work collectively so that the vaccine process, the manufacturing process is actually spread out, is regionalized, and then it is the whole of Africa approach in manufacturing vaccines. So in the coming days, we will be inviting entrepreneurs and working with the Afro-Exim Bank uh, to really sit down and and go through the, the detailed process of what does it really take and inviting them to be part of this uh, process. As you recall, our 10 countries in Africa are now uh, aggressively pursuing uh, vaccine manufacturing. And I think this effort will actually help us uh, move, not just focus on the peel and finish, but look at the entire ecosystem of how vaccine manufacturing should be pursued on the continent. So let me just conclude my remarks by giving you an update of where we are with the vaccine situation in Africa. As of today, <clears throat> a total of 167 million COVID vaccine doses have been procured by 53 member states. Uh, of that number, 122 million have actually been delivered, but that is administered. The total coverage, that is people that have been fully immunized by the two doses of, the two doses of vaccines, uh, it stands at 3.6%, 3.6%, which is extremely low compared to where uh, the rest of the world is. There are some hopes across member, member states. I mean, Morocco's uh, full coverage uh, stands at uh, 46%, South Africa about 18%, Egypt 4%, Tunisia 19%. And so I think this hope that we, if we have access to the vaccines, countries can actually take that up and we will um, increase that gap. 
I must conclude by saying that um, next week we'll begin to discuss, we'll gather at the UN General Assembly, the, the UNGA uh, meeting, the usual uh, annual meeting. That I really hope, and it is my wish, that uh, access to vaccines for a low and middle income country will become a central stage. We will take central stage for that, for those discussions. The foundation and the principles on which the United Nations was built was to address, come together to resolve humanity issues such as this one. And this is, in my view, one of the greatest crises, humanity crises that we face in our time. So I really hope and wish that uh, this is central to the discussions that will happen at UNGA next week. Thank you, Win, uh, and over to you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I seem to be getting feedback. All right, I think now we are okay. Thank you very much for that update. Uh, let's dive straight into the questions. And uh, you spoke about uh, access to vaccines. And our first question is on that. It's coming from Judith Akolo, who is with the Kenya Broadcasting Corporation in Nairobi. And she says, my question is, testing for COVID-19, especially by the private sector, is a prohibitive in Africa. So what can member states do to bring down this cost, as well as to ensure that testing is free of charge, so as to encourage more people to test? And she says she believes that this will be advantageous to the respective governments and to the Africa CDC, as the real situation of the disease on the continent will then be known and hence allow for targeted intervention. So that's a question from Judith of, of uh, KBC. So Judith, you are absolutely right. Uh, the, the tests, the cost of testing for COVID across the continent continues to be uh, uh, prohibitively high, and I'll say unnecessarily so because we know the cost of reagents for the, the PCR test is not a hundred dollars. The cost is well below that. I think it is really uh, the cost is actually below ten dollars. So even if you factor in the the the, the cost of labor, it should make a thirty up to one hundred dollars. So uh, we have been surprised to see this large fluctuation in in the cost of of, of uh, testing across the continent, which actually uh, will not encourage people to um, go to the testing stations. In the coming weeks. As I indicated earlier, we will be launching a massive campaign for uh, for surveillance by, by using the antigen test, okay, so that uh, we can empower the communities to move the testing into the community, and, and people should test and know their status. If they know their status, they can actually take action by isolating themselves and protecting uh, their loved ones and protecting the, the, the community so that the, the PCR testing would automatically become something that people do to travel and not something that we do to understand the epidemiology. So that is our goal in the coming weeks, and we hope once we learn that, we will um, enjoy your partnership and support as always, so that a um, large number of people sh uh, should be tested uh, in the next couple of months and know their status. I think that is um, what I would say with respect to that question. 
Thank you. Hello to Gabriel Steinhausen. Good morning, Gabriel. Please go ahead with your question. Hi, thank you so much. Um, my question is uh, related to the meetings in Geneva and more broadly. Uh, do you feel that um, the countries that are now donating vaccines to Africa, and, and as well as the shipments that are, are now arriving from COVAX, is there enough support um, for countries to actually then get these doses into arms, both in terms of um, communicating to the public that these are arriving and that they're safe, but also you know logistical and operational issues such as culture, uh, cold chain infrastructure and other others, or should the countries that are donating vaccines actually be doing more to support the distribution as well? Thank you. I think that, um, Gabriela, every, we should be looking at both sides of the equation, the, the vaccine delivery and the vaccination process itself, because they go hand in hand. And countries are really making a lot of progress. I think we have discussed this uh, over and over during this platform. And we have images to show, for, to back this up. If you look at uh, Morocco, Zimbabwe, Rwanda, and all these, these countries, there, and they have long lines of people sitting out there waiting for vaccines. So I think we really have to do two things. One, aggressively continue to work with countries, and that is what we are doing. Africa CDC has teams that are out there working with countries to strengthen the ability to deliver the vaccines, work with countries to strengthen community engagement and engaging with religious leaders. A team from our, the Africa CDC just returned from, from Cameroon where they were meeting with um, the, the, the Muslim community leadership, the, the Christian the community leadership, just to encourage them to work with us so that they can uh, improve uptake of vaccines in the community. We have to do that. Logistics is a key challenge here, and we have to focus on that. Human resource capacity for, for vaccination is key. Well, uh, we have to focus on that, and we are focusing on that and many others. And that is one of the things that we discussed very specifically at, um, at Gabi, uh, with uh, Seth Berkeley, the, the CEO of Gabi, and it was really focused on how do we unite our efforts at, at ground zero and work with others to make sure that um, we deliver more effectively and more efficiently. I think that, that component, everybody is aware of that. For example, uh, to be very specific, we said at Gabi that, look, if we know where your coachings are, uh, that you put coaching, then we can work on the maintenance of those coachings. Africa CDC can work with you to maintain those coachings so that they don't break down. And that would be a very good example of partnership because we have boots on the ground, we can do that. So I think I remain uh, hopeful that if the vaccines arrive, they will be put in the arms of, of people. Would everything go into the arms? No. But we have to work in mitigating that risk so that uh, the, 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 the loss of vaccines is not significant. I think we should really try to get all vaccines into the arms of, of people as, as much as possible. With respect to delivery, my, my appeal, and this is also something we discussed in Geneva, is that uh, donations should be coordinated so that we know exactly what type of vaccine is coming, or when are they coming, and what is their expiration date, so that the country can plan accordingly. So that you don't uh, it is in nobody's interest that you uh, make an announcement today that you delivered uh, millions of vaccines and the vaccines expire, say, in three weeks. I think nobody has the capacity and ability to get organized in three weeks to get people immunized at that scale. So I think it's, it's, a, it's a continuum of process and a continuum of dialogue. We continue to engage with the, all the stakeholders and everyone else who wants to work with, with us in this place. And I'm very pleased that 
there was full alignment uh, during our visit in Geneva in this. All right. Uh, thank you, John. And now we go to a question that's coming from our WhatsApp platform. And this is coming from Nicolas Barrio, who is a correspondent with the Wall Street Journal in Kampala, Uganda. He says, my question is about COVID-19 excess deaths in Africa. Statistics about excess deaths since the outbreak of the pandemic suggest that the real death toll from COVID-19 is many times higher than the official figures across many African countries. With these deaths likely way higher, what does this mean for the real impact of the virus in Africa? And how does this impact the case for vaccine equity? So I think uh, that is an area that I, I truly can uh, have a conversation on. I, I don't believe that we have a significantly higher number of excess deaths in Africa. I think that we can dispute that. Uh, what we know for sure is that we have excess number of infections, like people that have been infected and we didn't count them, okay, or countries didn't count them. And we have provided evidence to support this, right? We have shared evidence on this platform uh, based on serologic surveys, which asks a basic question as to have you been infected or are you currently infected? I'm using uh, serological markers. We, we clearly uh, uh, reported that many more people have been exposed to, to the virus, but uh, not dead. So I think that is one thing. The second part of the question, which is what you're addressing, is have there been a significantly higher number of deaths than than what is reported. And I guess the answer, in my view, without the evidence, is no, based on sociological and cultural context. Death in Africa are taken seriously. If there are deaths in my village in, in Cameroon, I will know, I mean, for a period. I mean, if there are deaths in your village uh, in Kenya or Uganda, you will know. So I think that is um, absolutely, uh, Africans don't hide death. Uh, it's a cultural thing, and uh, we will definitely know that. Are we missing? Uh, are the 204,000 deaths that we have recorded exact? Absolutely not. When we count things, we miss things. And, and that is basic uh, public health and epidemiology. You count things, you not count everything. Are we missing it like three or fourfold? I doubt that, that we, we, are, we are missing it by three or fourfold. So we were also very clear during the peak of the, the third wave the, uh, where we saw large number of, of barriers went on. We reported that, and we, I think that was uh, very, very clear. But that is not what we are seeing on daily basis across, uh, across the continent. Now, when these waves come, they come with a severity. So let me just give you a, a, an example. During the third wave alone, which started from June to end of uh, uh, August, there were 72,000 new deaths. 72,000 new deaths out of the 204 cumulative deaths that we have recorded since the beginning of this pandemic. Just during the third wave, so that is how brutal the third wave uh, uh, can be, these waves can be. So because they overwhelm hospital systems, even people die from things that uh, are not necessarily COVID-related just because you may have a, a, a heart condition and because all the beds and facilities are occupied you, you actually die because of other things, not because of COVID. So the waves actually come in with a severe burden on the health system. They bring a serious impact on that. And as I said, 72,000 people died just over the last uh, three months uh, during the third wave. Thank you very much. 
Let's uh, go online and uh, call upon uh, Paul Adepoju. And Paul is reporting for The Lancet and uh, Nature. Paul, good morning. Please go ahead with your question. Thank you very much, uh, and uh, thanks for this opportunity. And um, during the, uh, the visit, uh, Dr. John's visit to Geneva and uh, in his presentation, and I began to ask about why are we not having uh, a similar HIVAT approach to testing? Uh, because um, a country like Nigeria with nearly 200 million uh, people uh, in, more than one year since the pandemic began has not conducted up to 3 million tests. And there are also concerns around uh, the, the trust, how people can trust the results that are coming from these tests. Uh, let me give you two quick backgrounds. There was the news in Nigeria that uh, when some Nigerians traveled to Ghana uh, with a negative COVID test on arrival, they will say that they tested positive, so they have to be paying $100 per night uh, during quarantine. And, uh, the, and uh, these are really eroded trust that maybe uh, the results are not reliable. So personally, in Nigeria too, I decided to explore this further. So I did two sets of COVID tests in two different laboratories. The first lab said I tested positive, and the next day I went to another lab and that result said I tested negative. And uh, currently I'm in the UK where on arrival my day two test results showed I'm negative. So we can, uh, so there are these concerns around uh, trust of the COVID test uh, seems to be quite valid. And so I would like to know what is being done to improve uh, trust system in the COVID testing. And taking the question on testing further, what is currently the level of trust such that in addition to bringing down the cost, uh, antigen-based tests are being used so that the cost is brought down and it becomes available. A second question I have is on the recently released results of Ebola vaccine study in Syria alone that shows that uh, it's well-tolerated and safe for, for users as young as one year. So I would like to know your remark on the outcome of these uh, studies. Thank you very much. Uh, th thank you, Paul. Uh, th first of all, let me start with a, you actually asked about three or four questions in, in your two questions. I mean, let me start with the expanded testing in Nigeria. Not only Nigeria alone, you've heard me on this platform over and over asking for testing. That if you do not test, you do not find. And the only way that you win uh, an infectious disease, uh, um, to, uh, you are fight against an infectious disease is to test. Okay, you test and you find out, you know what it is uh, that you are dealing with there. And that is why, as I said earlier, um, in response to the, one of your the colleagues on this platform said, we will be launching a vast campaign to, of testing, rolling out testing. Access to tests is not longer an issue now on, on the continent. It was an issue one year ago. It is not an issue anymore because there are so many uh, products out there, good quality products for tests. Uh, to, to conduct PCR testing. Uh, just uh, four weeks ago, uh, we were in Morocco, and there's a, a company there that is producing quality, top-notch uh, PCR tests, which we will be encouraging African countries to, to, to buy a lot. I think the test cost about $5 or so, or less than $10, just to be, not to be very, very specific there. So we encourage all countries to ramp up the testing. That, to expand the testing and not just limit it to people that are traveling, and to, to use it more for, for, to find cases 
uh, what we call surveillance, so that you can actually uh, detect people that are infected and don't even know their status, and then let them take personal responsibility. That's the only way we are going to bring back this, um, uh, beat back this pandemic. Because as we've discussed, vaccination rates are very low. It's, we are 3.5% uh, um, with respect to those who are fully vaccinated. So it means that appropriate measures, uh, which is underpinned by large-scale testing, must still be encouraged. <clears throat> with respect to um, the validity or trust of, of tests, as um, a virologist myself, uh, we, we lay a lot of emphasis on quality assurance. That's why we have worked very hard with the African Society for Laboratory Medicine, uh, commonly called ASLM, uh, to expand quality assurance programs and to train, <coughs> excuse me, and continue to train on quality assurance in our programs across the continent. So again, we have to uh, make sure that um, the, the labs that are authorized to test do implement quality assurance, and it's only authorized laboratories that are conducting the test. Just excuse me. We believe that except we all collectively work together, that is, uh, countries only allow specific tests, uh, sorry, specific laboratories that are, are fully certified to be um, to conduct the test, that they, they, those laboratories conducting tests enroll in continuous quality improvement uh, processes and that there are checks and rechecks will continue to have issues. It's not only for COVID tests. Testing, anything that you do in the laboratory requires aggressive quality control measures there. So I think there's um, uh, there's need to continue to enhance that. Admit that there's some uh, limitations when you do testing. It's not just for COVID testing. We're testing across the board. Uh, we've lived with HIV for 40 years, and we still continue to enhance uh, quality assurance programs for those uh, so that we ensure the reliable uh, test results. Um, with the Ebola vaccine, I don't think I, I fully understood it. Was it that the vaccine is effective in younger age population, or can you just uh, ask that question again, Paul? Uh, yes, uh, the results show that uh, users as young as one year can take the vaccine and it's safe and effective. So I want to know what you believe the outcome of these findings means for Ebola response in Africa. No, that would be huge. If uh, clinical trials have been shown uh, to uh, to demonstrate and back that uh, children that are, are that young should receive the vaccine, that would be wonderful news. I think the most important thing is that we should um, back up our programmatic uh, uh, decisions based on evidence and science. So if those studies have been conducted in children, uh, that there is no absolute no reason. There is really no reason to believe that uh, that should be the case and should actually become policy. Then the issue with the children uh, and Ebola is that, of course, they are infected. So if they are infected and they are vaccines, that can be administered at that age group, then it means that we have actually expanded our two kits to fight uh, an eventual Ebola um, uh, outbreak, especially uh, using ring vaccination if uh, these vaccines are available. So you'll not be restricting it only to adults, but to, to children. So that, that would be very encouraging uh, result. All right, uh, thank you very much. Uh, let's go back online and uh, welcome Sophie Mukwena, who's with SABC. Good morning, Sophie, please go ahead. Thank you so much. Dr. Nkengasong, when you were addressing the media briefing on Tuesday uh, with the WHO director and Mr. Masiwa, 
One issue that I picked up was that it looks like our strategy as a continent in terms of access to vaccines has been pushing very hard at international level, different international uh, platforms to push for TRIPS waiver, which is actually uh, a long-term goal or one can say that's the aim. But in terms of objective, what we can achieve now to speed up access to vaccines, it looks like we were off the mark. I mean, uh, the president of France also indicated that yes, trip, but come up with a clear program for now, what you want and how to achieve that in terms of access to vaccines. The same with uh, the president of the United States of America, Joe Biden at the G7. Now you have Biden who has organized a sideline meeting on COVID-19 uh, or conference or summit ahead of the uh, United Nations General Assembly. And you also have the G20 meeting coming. Our president, President Ramaphosa, is leading the campaign on the continent to fight COVID-19 access to vaccines. He is also a co-chair of COVAX. He is a member of, South Africa is the member of the G20. We are also part of the UN. We might be participating at the summit with uh, Joe Biden. What is your advice? Don't you think it's time for us as a continent, uh, leading the charge, the president of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa, to change uh, the gear and, and come up with something that can be immediate? The objective, the long term of Keeps waiver, it's fine, but let's push the objective now. What we can do, and clearly, the objective will be to push that pharmaceutical companies must really stock because Clive Masiwa is saying we have money, but we can't buy because uh, they are not making um, vaccines available to us. When we see big nations uh, producing these vaccines. Why are we not changing the strategy? Come up with the objective. We'll deal with the aim later. So uh, I think, Sophie, you, you touched on very key issues, um, which, uh, trust me, and believe me, we are dealing with all of those issues simultaneously. We are not dealing with the, the other issue separately from access to vaccines uh, now for the continent. Um, I must say that, and I'll say this very clearly, that we need transparency in who is producing vaccines and where are the vaccines going, uh, going to. Because uh, you hear all kinds of versions that the vaccines are not available, but yet countries are vaccinating. Okay, I mean, developed countries are vaccinating and achieving high percentage coverage there. So we don't know where these vaccines are coming from. And, we have money on the continent. We don't have access to vac the vaccines. So it's really not a money issue. We've heard from Mr. Masiwa said many times that this sharing is not a solution. Tell us where the vaccines are. We'll go get buy vaccines for our people on the continent. And I think that, is, that message has been very consistent. I mean, we welcome all donations, uh, but that is not going to provide us uh, a long-term solution to solving our problem. The president of South Africa, uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa, has been an extraordinary, exceptional hands-on leader in this crisis in two ways. This is 
absolutely a technical and public health position that I'm laying out for you with clarity. One, it is true is a push that it was able to, uh, we were able to at least begin to achieve some, the achieve waivers. The United States came up, uh, President Biden, remember a few months ago, saying the United States agreed to that. So it was because South Africa had taken a position. And the African Union endorsed that position and moved that forward during the February summit. I think we have a record for that. It is because of this championship that we got there. Second, the 400 million doses of vaccines that Maybe, uh, that we signed with Johnson and Johnson that would be pretty, uh, that have started being distributed from the Aspen facility in South Africa is actually thanks to his personal hands-on engagement in the process. It's a long story, but he and Mr. Masiwa have actually been my true heroes in this battle against um, a COVID vaccine access on the continent. I enjoyed uh, uh, in a light manner. Uh, characterize them like the COVID warriors, the COVID vaccine warriors for, for the continent. They are truly our COVID vaccine warriors because they have been personally engaging with Johnson & Johnson and the Aspen Pharmaceutical Group in South Africa to make sure that we have uh, these vaccines delivered in Africa. And we've been talking to all vaccine manufacturers, all of them in, in Africa, including Anyone who wants to, to, to sit down and talk to us, we have, we have, we have been talking to them. So it's not uh, 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 like we are wait, waiting for the waivers to, to come in, uh, which will take time, as you say, and then we wait for these vaccines to be hands-on. We are actually working with everyone who, who wishes to work with us. Thank you very much for that. Uh, let's go to a question that's coming in from Addis Gepacho. And Addis is the correspondent for Anadolu News Agency. So he says, could you please tell us what the challenges of having to use the different vaccines in Africa have been in terms of tracking how many people took which brand? And then he also asks about the challenges, the logistical challenges, as the different vaccines may require different ways of transporting, storing, etc. So those are two questions from Addis. So there are only two vaccines that truly required an ultra coaching. That's an ultra coaching just meaning that you, you need a minus uh, 70 or, uh, or 80 uh, degree uh, uh, freezer to store them and then uh, transport them to where um, they, they are needed. That is the Pfizer vaccine and Moderna vaccine. We know that for the rest of the vaccine, have all been produced in a way that you can move them with the traditional coaching, which is the two degrees to the eight degrees uh, uh, refrigerator. So I think that is um, an issue that, um, that if uh, I see and I've said before that um, that shouldn't be an issue. If you get me the Pfizer vaccines uh, uh, in Africa, I will administer them in major cities. I will not move them into remote areas. So you keep it, you make it a major city vaccine and roll it out in major cities. Major cities have power. Uh, they have um, uh, uh, deep freezers, and you can actually expand that very easily and monitor it and track it, set up a system that you can track all of them so that they can they, they ensure that they are functioning well. So that is, uh, uh, in my view, not uh, uh, a problem. The challenge you have is predictable access to vaccines. And that leads me to your, uh, your first question you asked is, all these vaccines coming in there. We cannot stop countries from accepting vaccines. 
we cannot stop the donors from uh, donating vaccines, but they come in in all kinds of form. The AstraZeneca comes, the vaccines come in, the Sinopharm come in, the Sinovac comes in. So it's all mixture of vaccine. All what we are asking, and this is what I said earlier, and we also discussed that in Geneva, is let us have at least a way to manage the, the collection of vaccines, the donation of vaccines, so that we can plan and support countries accordingly to deliver the vaccines and document who is receiving which vaccine and, and when are they receiving it. All right, uh, thank you. Let's move to our WhatsApp platform and uh, say good morning to Sarah Jerving, who is with DevEx. And uh, Sarah says, on Tuesday, Benedict Orama said that $300 million is urgently needed with the target raised to 70%. And I think there she's talking about our initial um, uh, prediction of needing 60% to achieve herd immunity. Then she goes on to say, will this 300 million be spent upfront as upfront financing for the purchase of vaccines? And if so, which manufacturer is the African Union in discussion with? So I think uh, President uh, Orama, the president of the African uh, Export uh, Import Bank, was right. I think that is as we shift our target. I mean, they, the bankers, have made their calculations and they said they will need an, uh, in addition uh, an additional 300 million dollars, uh, and it could be applied towards any vaccine. It doesn't need to be the Johnson and Johnson or any other vaccine. We are looking for vaccines, effective vaccines vaccines that have been uh, proven to be effective and vaccines that are safe. All vaccines will be looked into. For now, do we have any uh, company that um, is close to signing agreements uh, with, with Avad? No, we don't. Because again, as I said earlier, uh, country, uh, uh, manufacturers are not, um, uh, uh, we, we don't yet have anyone who has come up and said, look, here we have enough vaccines and we have to, we can sign a contract with would the money be required up from uh, the Afri Exim Bank is ready to um, uh, to uh, support those facilities. Remember, the Afri Exim Bank committed $2 billion earlier on, and it is thanks to that commitment and that uh, we, they were able to pay the Johnson & Johnson and countries uh, bought into that uh, that contract. So I think, I believe that if there's enough clarity of the course of action, uh, the African Green Bank will be, and others will be ready to um, put on the table uh, uh, financing to support those additional doses that will be required to get us to 70%. All right, so we come back to Judith Akolo, who is with Kenya Broadcasting Corporation, and she says, my question is, we have noticed a slight drop in the number of new cases of COVID-19 with the positivity rate at 7% yesterday. And I think this is in reference to Kenya. Then she asks, can we comfortably say that the fourth wave in Kenya has plateaued and is now coming down? If, I've not seen the specific data from Kenya, but if it's beginning to come down slightly, we hope that we'll see in the next one week or two weeks if that trend continues. And then uh, we, we can uh, rightly admit that uh, the, the, we are beginning to bend the curve and plateau it uh, uh, for the, the fourth wave. But if you look at them, so, so that is the short answer to that question. But let's not fool ourselves with this, uh, the peak and the troughs here. The truth is, if you look at the, the pandemic, 
uh, the, the period between the first wave, the second, the third wave, and the fourth wave, uh, it is usually an interval of two months or three months. So they, you come down to the trough, you can maintain it there for about two months or three months, and you go back upwards. So I think what we should be doing now is clearly working with member states to say, when we go down the, the, the peak, what do we really do? What are the measures that we should put in place so that we do not go up back, back up there? Because if we keep doing the, the up and down movement, the, the impact on human life is tremendous. I've given you some evidence. 72,000 Africans died during the, the third wave. Uh, uh, so that we do not repeat that for the, the fourth wave and, and, and the fifth wave. It has tremendous impact on the economic tool that, uh, by these lockdowns. I think this, um, the, 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 the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa, UNICA, has in fact, uh, produced some figures which I'll find and share with you all next week, which speaks to how much damage it does to the economy by the lockdown. So we really have to be balancing between saving lives and saving economies so that when we come down, when Kenya comes down to the trough, what do we do to keep Kenya at that level for, for right, uh, thank you very much uh, dr john we don't seem to have any more questions uh, coming through so perhaps let me then give you this time to summarize your key headline points uh, for takeaways from today's briefing so again my, my key points is really that um as we gather next week at the united nations general assembly dr. John? yes can you hear me Hello? Hello? Hello, yes. I was saying that we don't have any more questions, so this would be the time for you to give us your summary uh, of the main headline points. So, uh, if you can hear me now, I, I was saying that it's uh, just one point, that as we gather next week at the UN General Assembly, uh, it is my hope and wish that uh, access to vaccines on the continent should take central stage because uh, we cannot live in a world of vaccinated and the unvaccinated. That is not a formula to win a pandemic. We have seen what has transpired in Israel. We've seen what is going on in the, in the United States where a large chunk of the population is vaccinated and a large chunk is not vaccinated, but you see the impact that it begins to neutralize even the effect of the vaccination, what the vaccination had done in terms of protecting uh, people from severe illnesses or severe deaths. So I think that is, will be the same thing. If the developed world is vaccinated and Africa is not vaccinated, you see the same effect happening there. So I think it is a, 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 my appeal that that discussion, a specific discussion of how do we quickly make access to COVID vaccines on the continent of Africa should be the central point of discussion for the next week's uh, UN General Assembly meeting. All right. Uh, thank you very much for that. I will have to apologize to you because we have one question that's just come in, uh, which I think we can take in the remaining uh, few minutes before we run out of time. And it is coming from Mario Baptista. And uh, he says, uh, you said that Equatorial Guinea has been added to the countries facing the third wave. However, Equatorial Guinea's figures of 10... seems rather small. How do you explain this, given that there have been several organizations questioning the country's data? 
So remember, this is the country's reported data, and it's not about the number of cases. Is the compa you're comparing your seven days moving average each time with a previous uh, uh, week? Okay, you are not. So we, we do not go to any country to gather data from that country. We, we work on data that is reported from the country. That is what everybody. And all public health organizations do. So even if you were, your numbers are low, we're comparing the numbers of the previous week and the numbers of this week. Okay, so to determine whether you are moving towards uh, the third wave or the fourth wave. All right, thank you very much. And that was our very last uh, question for today. So let me thank uh, Dr. John. He's already given us his summary. Let me thank you colleagues joining us from throughout the world. And also thank you to the team behind the scenes at the African Union and the Africa CDC. Let us meet again for another press briefing next week on Thursday at the same time. Bye-bye for now. Welcome back. And uh, that was the uh, African uh, Center for Disease Control and Prevention briefing uh, from uh, just uh, two days ago. Uh, led uh, by the Director General, Dr. John and Kangasone, <clears throat> discussing uh, the COVID-19 pandemic on the continent, the rollout of vaccinations, and also uh, questions about uh, the Ebola virus disease uh, vaccine and its use among uh, children. And uh, that's going to uh, conclude our program for today. Uh, you've been listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for Saturday, uh, September 18th, uh, 2021. We broadcast in live from the studios of the Pan-African Journal in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again uh, to another edition of our program. We want to remind our listeners uh, that uh, this uh, program can be accessed uh, by merely logging on to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. Uh, also, uh, you can uh, share uh, these programs with other potential listeners by just copying and pasting the links uh, into emails and posting and copying the links uh, into blogs and websites, as well as sharing the links over social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, uh, it's a seven-day-a-week, 24-hour-a-day news service, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, right now we're going to conclude uh, with uh, the music once again of Jimi Hendrix, this time along with B.B. King and Buddy Miles and other artists. Uh, this uh, was recorded uh, live at the Generation Club uh, in New York City on April 15th of 1968. Uh, Generation Club located uh, in Greenwich Village. And um, Hendrix uh, lived there uh, for many years and, of course, performed there on many occasions, including uh, at the Fillmore East, uh, which is located in um, the East Village uh, on uh, at least uh, in 1968 and also in 1969, 1970, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, four concerts uh, from 1969, 1970, but this is from April 15th of 1968 and other artists are involved, including B.B. King. 
This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.
Thank you.